Thank you to our show sponsors, Acadian Plant Health, Corteva Enlisty 3, and Atoma Canada. While other sources of innovation run dry and fail to understand your needs, Atoma is here to deliver. And we're all in on you. Talk to your Atoma sales rep today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Agronomist. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and I am super excited about tonight's chat. Uh, there's been lots of discussions leading up to it. Um, and we did also have a couple of people asking if Producer Jay would be sharing any insights from Agritechnica as uh, the team just got back on Friday. Uh, he has said no. He declines. So you'll just have to go to our YouTube channel, head on over there, uh, or if you're here, subscribe, and uh, go check it all out from there. Okay, great to see everybody hopping on. Hello, Ray. Um, and uh, Kevin's here from out in BC. John is back. Well, hello, John. It's been a really long time. Uh, and I do, of course, want to say hello to Paisley as well. We know he watches, even if he doesn't say anything. Um, all right. Uh, for watching tonight's program, of course, you can collect those CEU credits. Head on over to realagriculture.com slash agronomist. Let us know you watch the episode. And while you're there, you can actually subscribe to the email list that will alert you to upcoming episodes and remind you of the link so you don't forget. Uh, so there you go. Okay, and tonight's topic, yes, a big one. Uh, we've sort of leading up to this uh, with our episode a couple weeks ago. Uh, and so without further ado, we're going to have a discussion about no data versus bad data versus good data and how it informs our decisions. So let's bring in tonight's guests. We've got Paul Hermans with Corteva and Jeremy Boychin with Alberta Grains. The new handle, Jeremy, Alberta Grains. Very quickly, who is Alberta Grains? The artist oh, formerly known as Alberta Wheat and Alberta Barley. So as of August 1st, we have amalgamated into one group representing both wheat and barley. Uh, we have a new executive director and we are excited for the future. There you go. Yes. All right. Alberta Grains. It, I like it. It's an easy, it's a, we ease into it. I, it's, it's good to remember. I like it. All right. And Mr. Paul Hermans. Hello. How are G'day. you? I'm doing well. One of my yeah. favorite subjects, data, data, more data. Right? I know. This, uh, when I started asking around, like, who's gonna, who's gonna speak to this topic? It was hands down. It was gonna be Paul here in the East. And as the crow flies, of course, we're not that far from each other. We're maybe, maybe an hour, hour and a bit away from each other. So, uh, much of what has happened in my neighborhood has happened in yours too. But let's start there, Paul. Is there still most of the corn out where you are? It, it's, Depends on where you're at. So, Lindsay, you're going to have to do a geography lesson. I'm, I'm only about a half oh. an hour away from you. So, Oh, that's but, true, actually. You're much true. closer. <laughs> yeah. But in my Richmond area where I live, we're probably about 80, 85% done. But you go up to Renfrew County, about an hour yeah. west of here, they're probably only about a third done. So it depends on where you're at. But there's still some beans out there, and we're going to have yep. some snow coming tomorrow. So that's kind of scary. Can you not? Um, yeah, I would. I would prefer not. Um, I know it's getting late. I, I'm very spoiled at this point, and we kind of have been. We've really only had snow sort of once, maybe a little skiff here or there. Now, Jeremy, from where you are in Alberta, I mean, everybody's on to trade show season already. Uh, we've been done for quite some time. Winter came uh, for a little bit, and then it backed off for a while. We've had a few days here in the 10, 11, 12 degrees. So it's, it's been 
my goodness, it's been quite the extended fall. I think I see a few uh, cover crops coming up that maybe weren't chosen to be there, but they, we have some regrowth happening. Um, so it's it's been an interesting fall so far, and, and I think one of these days winter might show up for us. Maybe. We'll see. Um, yeah, I did. I was hearing about, Jamie, out your way about what it was a spring cereal that did not germinate, um, that it decided to germinate this fall. And so you're right. It's like an unintended cover crop. Finally. Yeah. Um, all right. And John has a question and it's a good one. And we could, I mean, we've been talking about this on the radio show, but it's also true uh, for those who are trying to get corn out of the fields. A lot of the elevators are stuffed full and trying to find a place to put it is, uh, is rather difficult. And so here's where I will put in my plug for our Western Canadian friends who just build bins. So there you go. Just build bins. Solves all your problems. Uh, isn't that right? If we just have unlimited funds and all the time in the world, away we go. Okay. But tonight's topic, let's get down to it because this is a good one. We're talking about data. We're talking about um, how to determine good data from bad and why that even matters, if we can put it that way. Um, get your questions in uh, early. We are going to talk about, you know, yield monitors and weigh wagons. And we're also going to talk about how to determine what's good data. Um, Jeremy, I'll start with you. When you're evaluating data, what to you makes a strong case that this is good data and what would you consider weak data? Big question, Lindsay. And I mean, it really depends where it's coming from. If we're talking about on-farm research, data coming from trials on-farm, there's a variety of different factors that we have to look at that, you know, what makes this data strong? Is it is it replicated? Are we looking at information that has been replicated on that farm? Maybe not even within the same field where we're doing replicates of a certain treatment or if we're, we're testing a new hybrid or variety, um, replicating that test in the field multiple times, but multiple years as well. We know that there's variability that we experience year to year with our environment how is that hybrid? How is that variety? How is that management responding to those different environmental conditions? And that's going to really strengthen the power of that data. If if you come to me and you have a product or something that you're testing and you tell me that you had it in this field and you compared it to a different product in a different field that was whatever, it was one mile away or two miles away, I'm going to call that weak data. It's weak data because the rainfall in those between those two. And I know, you know, the difference between east and west is going to be a little bit different here. You know, I watched a hailstorm hit only the half mile north and half mile south of me. So I know the environmental conditions in the, in the field that I was standing on was very different than a half mile north. So if you're telling me you're comparing two fields and the results between those two, I'm going to tell you your data is weak. But if you're comparing in one field... Um, multiple replicates um, extending across that entire field um, and you're randomizing that trial, I'm going to call that stronger data. And I think, I think it's important for us to talk about this data in terms of, you know, it's not just good or bad, it's the strength of that data. How strong is it? Because there's weak data, but that doesn't make it bad data. It's just not as good to utilize to make decisions on um, where as you're getting uh, 
more replicated, more randomized, more re more repeatable information, um, that information becomes stronger and more reliable to make an invested decision or a long-term decision on your farm. All right. So I like this. We're sort of, there's a difference between strong and weak, but there's also a difference between good and bad. So we can dig into sort of these comparisons, but Paul, John says bad data is worse than no data. What makes bad data versus good data? If we're going to say weak and strong, what's bad versus good? Well, I, I think it, and if I could get producer Jay to bring up the first slide, it's, it's looking at a lot of environments or basically a lot of plot data. And back years ago, they looked at number of environments. So you can look at that as being number of plots, number of replicated data sites. But if I got one environment and I go across and I've got a six bushel difference in my corn yield, I've got a 52% chance of picking the right product going forward. So we're trying to get customers and growers to do is have a lot of similar products put in a, in a field across a bunch of different environments across a bunch of different years. And when we start getting into that 30 or 200 different environments of the same head-to-head -head product comparisons, well, then I get about a 90 to 95% accuracy of them picking the right hybrid or the right product. That can go, you know, true for agronomy practices, fertility, fungicides, everything else. It's having lots of data to look at to make sure that you're comfortable with that data going forward. I always talk about, you know, the best predictor for the future is looking at multiple years, two or three years of data, lots of data going forward. And then I have in here, you know, sometimes we have these really monstrous plots and the chance of picking the right product as you have more products in a plot gets less and less. And that's a lot to do to variability. So if you look at if I got 10 hybrids, I have about a 13% chance of picking the right product. So mm. in this case, smaller is better. And it comes back to that, you know, field variability aspect. If we can go to slide number two, this is just a plot that we had this year. And the hybrid in yellow, number one, 10 and 23, that was our check. And it averaged, the plot averaged 213 bushels, but the swing in that check was 25 bushels across the field. That was only about a three acre block. So just that whole wow. field variability aspect and how we deal with that. Okay, so now uh, Dr. Dave Hooker has entered the chat, and he wants clarification. One location equals one rep location. Paul? Yes, and yeah. and that's and I in an ideal world, it'd be nice to have replication with hybrids. But if we have four or six, and you start replicating it in a plot, it gets big. So we, from a seed company standpoint, we look at having lots of data across different growing environments to predict the future. Now, Jeremy, that would be similar, though, of course, when within, you know, Alberta grains or within the producer groups, uh, within the provinces, when you've got multi locations that adopt the same trials, uh, that's working towards trying to achieve the same thing, right? Where you have similar, um, a similar question, and then you can start to amass some of that data from other locations as well. implementing research in different environments and different locations is we really get an idea of a response curve right so if if we're only implementing in one location um then our data is really columnar like we, we're, we're not really seeing um where the response is going to be greatest and where it's going to be weakest and picking um the most economical point on that curve to adopt so uh you know 
Paul's showing a great example here of the value of having these trials in multiple locations, multiple environments. So he can pin down and as a producer can pin down where is going to be the best place for me based on my environmental conditions and my growing conditions because this variety, we know it, it responds really well in these conditions, but as we start heading towards maybe drier conditions, that response, we see that response go down and it's really that variance in environment that gives us a really strong idea of not just a hybrid, but a, 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 an agronomic management or practice, how it's going to respond for not just one producer, but multiple producers based on their environmental conditions. So, yeah, it really does strengthen the picture um, of these questions when we're able to do it over a variety of different locations and a variety of different years. Um, so producers need to be, when, when, when asking and looking at this data, um, you know, how many locations was this done at um, and, and how strong is that data and, and what's the variance of, of information I'm seeing from it. Right. So when, when, so when we think about the strength of data, we're thinking about Let's assume that it was good data going in, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, good data going in, lots of it, done with some rigor as far as replication and measuring it. And the more of it we have, the, the stronger it is, the more reliable we can use that data to inform decisions. It's that re reliability that we're after. Now, I just want to, Kevin said in the chat here, which I love this, uh, I had a customer buy six different varieties, a bag of each, End of season, I asked which one he liked. He didn't know because he didn't know where he planted each variety. So this, to me, gets to that question of, Paul, are we better off to keep, let's, let's look at it from sort of farm level. Are we better off to keep things relatively simple and only ask of that one question? So compare two varieties, let's say, and be able to say, okay, I like the difference here. I, I like this about this one. I like this one. Is that further to that question of too many? In a lot of cases, I'd rather see split planters. So taking a planter splitting in half, doing six and six, and have multiple replications across a field, and then yeah. have that, you know, maybe five or six times to bring in that data, but understanding that not every grower wants to do that. And then I think, too, if you could bring up slide number four, it's it's what are the problem issues in, in your area. And this is a, an interesting one. In Eastern Ontario, we have white mold like no one else, basically. So this is a, a study that kind of shows this year. So I have basically in green, red is yield differences. And I've got variety A versus variety B. While in central Ontario, variety A is a lot more green. In Eastern Ontario, it's opposite it's mm -hmm. yielding less. So knowing what the issues are in your area and making sure that you look at that data, because sometimes companies can bring across a whole area, here's my data set, but is it really replicated? Is it really conducive to what's going on in my growing area from a disease standpoint? So as an example, Southern Ontario with the Dawn and Vomitoxin, you know, there's hybrids down there that we don't, they don't grow down there. We grow them up here and rightly so because of difference in the environment. So kind of knowing those issues that are going on, taking that into account, helps you with, you know, making the right decision going forward. We we really have a white mold problem. I apologize to everyone. Um, so now Jason's asked some really good questions. And we are going to talk about uh, yield monitors and way wagons and, and that as well. So I'll, I'll hold on that one, Jason. But your second question is a very good one. And I'll put this, Jeremy, to you first. Uh, but Paul would love to hear your thoughts on this too, because it sort of weighs into that exact example of just 
a variety's performance in different areas, what is the right number of replicates? Or does it depend more on the number of sites that we're testing? This is a great, great question. Jeremy, I'll start with you. In general, um, when we're implementing on-farm trials, we're targeting somewhere at least three replications. Um, and that's because we know that across the field um, where each of these, those replicates are hitting, um, there's going to be variability between those two plots. And what we don't want to see um, is, is massive variability between those same treatments across those locations. We know we are going to see that. Um, so that's why we need to implement more replicates so when we get that variability in those different different locations we can become more confident in uh, essentially the the average number that comes from those multiple replicates um, and that's going to essentially be the answer no matter how many site locations we're looking at because the replicates are really meant to overcome the variability in that site not between sites. So we're strengthening data of that specific site um, rather than trying to, to capture across multiple sites. So uh, with some of the trials we do, you know, we'll target five replicates if we know that there's a lot of variability and, and we have the room to implement that on the field. And it just allows us, um, I guess in, in, in lesser words, to become more confident in the, st in the stat, uh, stats that come from analysis at the end because uh, the variance is lower um, and and the comparisons can be uh, a little bit stronger. Jeremy, why did you have to use the S word? Stats. Anyway, no, we have to. Okay, Paul, do you agree with that? Is, is three sort of the minimum so, and go from there? It might be a little bit different in the, in the seed world because we, we're dealing with larger scale farm operations in the research world and we got to understand that. So I like seeing at least 30 sets of of plot data on on a yearly basis if i'm going to go start doing agronomy trials and we start doing things like fungicide or no fungicide that type of stuff i want at least 10 sites of replicated data that are at least two or three times replicated to feel comfortable with that and then added on to that though but i want to see that over a three-year period because one year weather pattern is totally different than the next year and you know to be make sure that we're making the right decision moving forward all right, I have so many follow-ups to that, but we're, we're going to just pause just here because I want to bring in a, a clip. Uh, this is, I think it's a soybean school, Jay, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, with Sean Connolly talking about uh, what goes in to setting up a trial, um, and then we'll hear from our second sponsor for tonight's show. Now you are the Wisconsin soybean specialist, state soybean specialist, and uh, one of the things you're working with a lot on is analytics and data, big data. And uh, it's interesting because Wisconsin, a lot in common with here in Ontario, so right. I think we can extrapolate from your data. Um, tell me about, I guess, what you're doing. 7,000 fields you've got in your database. You bet. So we will receive funding through the North Central Soybean Research Program to basically look at the factors that are minimizing, uh, to minimize yield gaps across the Midwest. And frankly, in short, yield gaps are the difference between what the genetic yield potential is, which in soybean is roughly 120 bushels per acre, and what the on-farm average is, which is 70. Yeah. So basically at 70 bushels is the difference. And over the last four years, we've been able to extract 
uh, field level data from 7,000 farm fields and over 500,000 acres. Mm -hmm. uh, and that allows us then to do is have this huge data set and, and really kind of broach this topic of big data and, and pull some of the information out the growers have on their farms. Yeah. Now, uh, what's interesting is that, as I mentioned earlier, a lot in common with uh, Ontario. And you, you've got Michigan data there as well and stuff like that. Um, let's talk about some of your findings over that time. Um, a lot of no-till in Ontario, a lot of no-till in Wisconsin. Your data says two-bushel advantage for tillage. Right. So what we see is I would expect there's about three, three TEDs that would line up with what we would see in Ontario, what I expect and a, to and see. And a TED is an area of, of, of research yes. point, right? Yes, thank you. So a TED yeah. is a technology extrapolation domain. Basically what that is, it's a, it's a unit of area that we would expect to uh, yield uh, similarly and, response to, and respond to certain management practices similarly. Yeah. Okay? Right. So we were able to identify like these three TEDs that would be similar from Wisconsin to um, what we would see or expect to see in Ontario. And what we found is in two of the three, it really doesn't matter if you go no-till or till, the yield's the same. However, in one of those TEDs, we saw a two to three bushel yield advantage to tillage. Mm. And that's important for farmers to really kind of classify and figure out, you know, I mean, two or three bushels is, is, a, big, is a big difference, especially on soybeans. So I think that really helps farmers give them some power to figure out where they need to be in terms of their tillage practices to maximize yield and productivity. Tonight's show is brought to you by Adama Canada, Enlist D3 from Corteva, and Acadian Plant Health. Build a strong, high-yielding crop from the ground up. Acadian Plant Health biostimulants improve nutrient use efficiency and build crop resiliency against weather stress at each critical stage of development. For 40 years, Acadian Plant Health has developed biostimulant solutions used on over 100 crops in more than 80 countries worldwide. Find out how at AcadianPlantHealth-NA.com. All right, we are back. So I've got a question then. I don't think we need 700 fields, but I'm sure that would be great. But my question is, let's say I've, I, I've got rolling land and I want to run a trial. Do I run the trial, the length of the field up and down that roll or across that roll? Paul, you first. Or do I throw that field out entirely? How do we deal with variability? I guess it depends on what, what you're trying to accomplish. If I'm just doing a side-by-side -side comparison, so two hybrids, let's say it's a 12-row planter, six and six, I should have that variability, you know, consistent across where they go up and down, sideways or whatever. If I'm doing 10 hybrids, I would not use that field at all. I, I would look for more uniform fields and everything else, and it gets more into the research aspect of it. So, again, it, what, what are you trying to accomplish What's the, the size of your equipment? What do you have to work with? And, you know, we're getting a lot more specific in terms of um, soil mapping that we can do. Can we bring that into play and really pick out those differences in, in the slopes and the soil types and everything else and then match that with the yield monitor, bring that, that data back. But that gets into a totally different thing. If I'm looking at hybrid comparisons, I don't really trust the yield monitor, but I'm sure we're going to get into that here shortly. All right, Jeremy, same question. Does it, do you just, do you try to find a field with the least amount of variability or do you try and account for it when you set up the trial? You know, Paul nailed this on the head. It really depends on what you want out of that data because 
you know, we deal with this all the time, you know, producer shares the field with us and, and let's say we're, we're testing something like seeding rates in spring. Um, and our goal is to understand uh, what if we're increasing seeding rates, the impact is on, on that entire field. So if there's a rolling hill going east to west, um, we are going to have the trials going in that east to west direction. That way it's consistent across every replication and every treatment, and we're not getting massive differences between replications. However, um, you if, if you're more interested in maybe understanding how those seeding rates are impacted by soil type, then you may want to pivot that the other way. And then you might be a little bit, you, you, you might be crossways or essentially bisecting how those soil types move across the field. And then you'll be able to extract that, okay, at high seeding rates in this soil type, high seeding rates actually responded better than in the other in the other soil type. So it really depends on what your end goal is. So if your end goal is to understand how that topography impacts your management decision or your variety that you're questioning, then you need to actually plan to make sure that um, you, each treatment is in some way overlapping or encountering that different soil type or topography. Now, then that brings in other questions. Okay, how are you collecting that data? Um, because then it become, it just becomes a little bit more complicated than just driving the, the combine over and putting it through the way wagon. But um, it's kind of how you need to approach that. Um, mm -hmm. is it, am, am I trying to look at specific topography impacts on this management question? Or am I trying to avoid that and mitigate the amount of variability that that topography or soil type causes? Lindsay, so, it, oh yeah, go ahead. Can we bring up slide number three? Because I think it might have a good graphic there on the right-hand side of that slide to kind of show basically what you're, what you're talking about. And and so up on slide number three here in the right-hand side, this is a CEC map, basically. So you can see it's it's like a management zone as what's, what Jeremy was talking about is if I got strips, and this is nitrogen strips going across, so I can go and pull that data basically from those different management zones or topography zones or whatever it may be and get a sense from that and then use it that way. And it, I think it all depends on do you have that base layer of data to be able to do that? If I don't mm -hmm. have those different zone layers and topography and everything else, well, then it's hard for me to really pull that data out. If I'm just doing a, a simple way wagon strip, what does that really tell me other than just that one strip, if that makes sense? Well, it does. And let's, Jay, if you can leave this up while we, for a little bit, because, so that's, that adds to this. And, and to John's point, so John says here, um, fields are variable. So does putting all the test plots on, you know, the best fields really prove out, you know, how they're going to perform in real world, real world conditions. And, and I get where he's coming from on that, but, but Jeremy, I think you've handled it well. And, and Paul as well in trying to explain, it does depend on what you're trying to tease out. So like, if you're trying to evaluate, you know, strictly sort of the genetic component of what a hybrid or a variety can do, I mean, yes, you're going to be looking over at certain locations, but you are trying to 
narrow in on the genetic component of it versus, you know, some of the more agronomic trials where you're looking at fungicide responses or looking at or layering all that data. Um, but it is, a, it is a good question, Paula. How do you sort of work in, you know, the, the fact that varieties and hybrids have to go out and work in the real world? How do you work in yeah. that? So uh, just think of a, a re reverse funnel. And at the top of that funnel is where we started off with the research and everything else before it comes to the grower field. And that's where we want to have, you know, the, the best proven fields. Because at the end of the day, I want to have each product the same chance to win. So that's at the top, the, the cream of the crop fields. And as you start getting down into the bottom of the funnel, it gets bigger. Well, I'm going to start going across different environments. It could be the lower yielding fields, different soil types, different management practices. That's where that... When I showed that first slide with number of environments coming into play, that takes that variability kind of out of it. So the more environments I can have, I feel a lot more comfortable with it. So depending on where you are in that funnel, where we're from a research from a seeds company standpoint, that kind of plays that factor in, in that question that John had. Mm -hmm. Okay, now the, the second part to my question. This is so much fun, you guys. Um, so thank you for entertaining me and answering all of these. Um, so the second part to that is, so looking at that that photo on the right, so you've got, I see some soil variability, I see the strips going across them. But, and you mentioned this, Paul, the importance of having these layers of data, that has to be good data to start with. So you have to have a plan of collecting and layering this good data to really be able to start to dig into some of this. Totally agree. And without that, those data layer sets, to me, that that information is more or less useless because you're, you're not really making a decision. And it, this particular map here is a CEC map. So basically looking at soil texture to understand the differences in nitrogen rates with that. We could, you know, layer in organic matter. The list kind of goes on and on. But I think the more data that we have, the better decisions that we can make to get it micro managed down almost on a you know, foot by foot or smaller bases basically going forward. Now, Jeremy, it does make me think, though, about instances where we maybe don't have any data. Um, and so, and this has actually come up uh, recently, talking about something like a disease, like a root rot, like an aphanomyces, or, um, you know, potentially herbicide residues hanging around because of dry conditions. How do you sort of approach the discussion on, the importance of data that maybe goes when land changes hands. Are we having these discussions with farmers about the importance of keeping track of all sorts of different things and that data set? Here, when we're, when we're setting up a trial and we're having these discussions with farmers, farm history, field history plays a huge role in, in looking at whether this is a reasonable place to, to implement a trial. And, and John, that's a very important question. You know, we don't want to be avoiding the worst and only picking the best parts in the field. Um, but we do want to minimize the variability that we're getting back from this data. So the data we get back is, is strong, but you know what we need to, we certainly need to be having these discussions and asking the questions of, okay, what was sprayed here last year? How much rainfall came? Are we looking at risks of carryover? Is this a pea field? Are we expecting a lot of nitrogen carryover? Should we be doing a nitrogen um, trial on this? 
was there hail here two years ago? Is there excess nitrogen because of that? What was your soil test? All of these questions. And <laughs> I'm sure Paul can agree, but until you've run through this many on-farm research trials, you don't realize how many of these factors can come up and sneak up and impact the data in the end or, or what that data can mean for you when you're making decisions in the future. So keeping track and understanding what treatments, how that field was managed, was there any splitting? Was there even a trial that was implemented on this field two, three years ago? Because that's gonna play a role in, at least in Western Canada, in the nitrogen reserve that may be in that field. And that may impact your treatments as well and, and what the results may be. So all of these things are going to be important when trying to make a decision. And again, it comes down to minimizing or eliminating the variables that you cannot control for. So knowing what's going on in that field, knowing that field history is going to help make sure that you're not missing something. And, and I love manure history there because um, Paul has that in his slide. And I think that's, that's huge because, you know, we see impacts yeah. eight or nine years after manure has been applied of impacting the field. And, and if it's not applied evenly, should you be doing a trial on that field? And I think in general, you want to be avoiding that because the data is going to come back more variable um, than you want it to be. I would just like to point out right here is where I put the plug in for use manure um eight to ten years of an impact you guys okay anyway just kidding um not really but i i also think that on this show and i can i'm sure jason vote has all sorts of stories as agronomists how like so much of your job is trying to figure out what happened here right when there's a question and those are the questions you ask right you ask what was sprayed when um, you know, what was, what were the conditions like? What was on here last year? What did you do for tillage? Like, those are the questions that you go through when you're trying to assess when either maybe a product didn't work or you're seeing something you didn't expect or whatever. And so all of those are data points. It's just how we collect them, how we keep record of them. And we can go everything from, of course, scratching it on the back of a napkin or envelope that gets lost in the in the truck or, you know, all the way to these very sophisticated platforms that are either recording the stuff as we go or we're entering it as we go. Um, and so the, the point here is that, I mean, we never know what might be really important until we start scratching our heads over what happened here. So um, this Lizzie, is my plan I'll for write things down. Jeremy, go ahead. I'll just add in there, you know, if you if you do pick up a new field and you don't know the history on that field, you know, spend the time a few years, a couple rotations to understand, you know, what's going on in that field. Get an idea. Are there areas that seem to be odd? Um, are there what feels like mechanical differences across the field that you can't account for? Um, and then then you can start to ask the question of, of, is this a location that I can test out some potential products or test out some potential technologies before, before throwing extra money, extra energy yeah. into pulling out data that will, in the end, really not represent what you think it is. That time component is so incredibly important. Okay, so let's, I, I do want to address the question of the yield monitor. Paul, let's start there. 
Sure. We love to watch them. <laughs> I love to watch all. I get snaps all the time of people like, woo, look at it go. Um, we love them. But are they? So we'll start with, is a yield monitor good enough to be gauging our yield? It's good enough to gauge yield, and I think give us differences in the field and everything else. And especially if we start talking about stuff like variable rate fertility, I can come back and do a map based on crop removal, that type of stuff. But when it comes to comparing hybrids or soybean varieties, uh, that's where I kind of say, please don't use it. If we can bring up slide number six, and I've done a fair bit of comparisons over the years, you know, looking at a yield monitor versus the Waywagon data, and so the the ones on the left-hand side are in corn. The ones on the, on the right-hand side are in beans. And again, you can make the wrong decision by, you know, going strictly on the yield monitor itself. And, and it just, you know, hybrids are all different in terms of test weight, you know, kernel weight, size, everything else, how it impacts the, the monitor. Um, so my take home is if you want to get into that, you know, making the right decision, make, making the right product decision for 2024 and beyond bring in the way wagon use scales that type of stuff going forward and what do i need to calibrate everything where do well, you start where do you end it, calibrate well, it all it, it, you got to calibrate <laughs> i mean you got to do a calibration for for distance you got to do a calibration for the monitor the moisture meter everything else that's on the combine making sure it's all set up properly but Honestly, at the, at the end of the day, you know, let's not do it for trials, but for just general variability in the field, most customers, they can get it down to within one or 2% accuracy. That's great for doing things again, like to make soil fertility maps, decision zone maps, that kind of stuff. But, you know, 2% on 200 bushel crop, that could be four or five bushels off. And that adds up at the end of the day, if you're making the right or wrong decision. Mm-hmm. Now, is there, are you dealing with, because Jason had this question, um, and none of us work for these companies. So the question was how data is collected, though. So, Jeremy, I'll ask you, because you work with a lot of, you do the field scale, the on-farm trials that you're working with, are you are you running into roadblocks between, you know, different equipment manufacturers and being able to get good data out and all those sorts of things, or are we in a relatively good space as far as being able to use all the data across platforms? Yeah, so Lindsay, right out that we do not use yield monitor data in any of our analysis, period. If we are implementing a trial with a farmer, it is way wagon data that we are using. Grain cart with scales, um, and the producer can use that to to uh, calibrate their combine if they so desire. And, and we will sometimes compare it to the yield monitor data, but um, we are not confident in the variability in of, of the yield that we get back on the yield monitors. Environmental conditions change, and, and you know, sometimes we're harvesting trials where, and in Western Canada, we can go from, 25% humidity to all of a sudden the sun goes down and it's 75. Um, and it becomes very hard to account for that change um, and calibrate very quickly. So we avoid it altogether. Um, and I was actually in a meeting today talking about 
uh, yield monitors. And, and the, the quote I remember was uh, yield monitors were originally developed to make fancy maps. Uh, they were meant to impress farmers and make fancy maps. But we are in a situation right now where there is no real need for some of these manufacturers to create a better yield monitor. Because in the end, how many decisions are being made off that yield monitor? Um, you know, if as we push along, and, and I see it in my industry, in the US, in the prairies, uh, with the yield enhancement network, the desire and the need and the requirement for producers to implement their own on-farm trials is growing in North America, globally, it is becoming strong. And the more producers ask, demand, require of these equipment companies to develop better yield monitors that can adjust on the fly um, and produce better data so that we don't need to rely on a way wagon and we can get this data collected quicker, um, we will be in a much better spot in an industry. But as of right now, um, the, the variability between yield monitors, the variability that we see in, in changes that happen between varieties um, and as conditions change, it's just, it's not reliable enough. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. I'm going to just pause there because we've got a few key questions I want to get to yet tonight. Uh, but Producer Jay, if you would, we'll run our last read for tonight's show. The Agronomist is brought to you by Adama Canada, Acadian Plant Health, and Enlist E3 from Corteva. Looking for high yields and clean fields? Choose Enlist E3 Soybeans, part of the Enlist Weed Control System. Enlist E3 Soybeans help you control tough weeds, providing herbicide choice and tank mix flexibility. Enlist E3 Soybeans, the best in beans, period. All right. There are two things I definitely want to talk about. And we have somewhat talked about small plot versus field scale. We've, we've talked a lot of the big parts of it, some of the smaller parts of it. Um, there's still a few things I want to cover there. But first, I really want to talk about the danger of farming this year's weather and only this year's data. Paul, I'll go to you. You've got some great slides that really show us how our recency bias can really bite us in the sure. behind, if yeah, you will. I, I always talk about don't farm this year's weather. And if we could bring up slide number eight. And it's, you know, we're in such an emotional industry and, and what's going on today. And you sometimes forget about, you know, last year or two years before. But this is a slide that shows basically for eastern Ontario and Quebec, two years of data um, looking at soybean data. So on the bottom is your maturity grouping. And then on your left axis is yield. And you can see in 2023, so the bottom chart, basically the earlier varieties yielded just as well, actually better than the later varieties. And, and there was no yield advantage to it. But if I looked at 2022's data, um, it'd be totally opposite. And again, that's a year to year effect. Um, some of that to do with, with, I think the solar radiation that we have, the lack of sunlight later in the season, um, for the earlier varieties, they could put on more flowers and pods earlier on and, and have a, you know, a better grain fill. But again, if I'm going to be going and make a recommendation for 2024, I'm going to take the two years combined together and recommend that we take a look at a package of products and just don't farm this year's data overall. So starting there, it, on that specific example, do you look two years back, three years back, four years back? Is it, so, does it depend on the client? It, well, it's, 
I mean, we're getting into that seed selling season um, and everything else. And our, our sales reps, I work a lot with them. They're asking me for data. And I always go back and pull at least a three-year data set and, and send that data set to them. And, and I'll pull one, two, and then a three, and then say, hey, let's look to see, do we see similar trends? And But really focus on that three years of data, because that's going to help us predict, you know, the weather in the future, the best, what products are going to do the best. If I look at three years of data, I can can combine, you know, two, three, four, six hundred different growing environments across those three years. That's going to be the best, basically, to help, you know, predict what's going to happen and going to have happy um, farmers at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, hello to Jake, who's joined us, and Gord Specksnyder. Hi, Gord. Gord's got a great question. Jeremy, I'm going to throw this to you. Uh, Gord is considering putting scales on the grain cart. Uh, does it have to stay put for the scales to be accurate? This is a great question. Um, or, and are some scale designs better than others? Or should we stick with stationary way wagon? Jeremy, what say you? What has worked well for the farmers you're working with? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I can't speak too much about the quality between different uh, manufacturers of of um, scales, but I know that um, when that when that scale starts moving, when that grain cart starts moving, um, those numbers are going to go start going up and down because you're essentially changing the weight um, and where the weight is pushing on that on that cart. So you really want to be staying still as you're filling and emptying uh that that cart and, and this is how it functions for us you know we run up and down the field and then we park beside that cart we get the um the original weight dumper in there and and get the gross weight and, and do the difference and then they take off and that's going to give you the most accurate reading now there may be something out there that i'm unaware of where they're claiming or marketing that they can uh that it stays accurate when moving um but think about if you're moving and and maybe you're rolling up a hill um again that weight is is shifting um to a different portion um of those scales so i would i would be concerned that you would see some fluctuation in that weight if you're moving um and shifting while while doing that Grain carts are, are way wagons too. They always have to be calibrated as well, right? And every couple of years, we get certified company with scales in, with weights, put them on all the way wagons, and make sure they're you know within five pounds more or less. And it's it's stuff can go wrong. So I would echo the same thing um, that Jeremy said. You know, have them stationary. The more you're moving around, the more problems can go on and break and everything else. I, I don't have any data on accuracy between stuff. That's not my forte, but uh, yeah, just like anything else, you got to make sure it's kept up to speed and good condition and calibrate often as well. I mean, if you're going to go through the time to yep. collect and gather data, make sure it's it's correct and calibrated uh, because garbage in, garbage out. Paul, let's talk about that. I've only ever heard it. I've only ever heard it in the um, nutrition world when you're trying to train for a half marathon and you eat nothing but candy bars and then you try and run and you just bleh. um ask me how I know. Uh, but but yeah, so with data, same idea: garbage in, garbage out. So exactly, and, and I, you know, I could use example of, of fertility maps. Let's say we're trying to do a map off of uh, corn, right? And if my combine is off by eight to ten percent. Well, that means on a 200 bushel of crop, I'm either 2 220 or 180. And if I'm going to do a 
crop removal map off of that, that's a big difference in terms of what could be going on or off. That's just one example right there. So to me, that's garbage in, garbage out. Um, you know, again, going back to hybrids, varieties, if I don't make the right decision and I'm taking, you know, I'm going to make my seed decision on that, I might be buying the wrong product for the next couple of years and I could be five, 10 bushels off the market where I should be. That adds up at the end of the day. Absolutely. Now, Jeremy, I want to touch base on um, the sort of small plot and field scale. And of course, you're working a lot doing a lot of sort of the, the field scale moving from what do you think are some of the biggest pitfalls of potentially trying to extrapolate out of a small plot data to field scale? Question. Um, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with um, small plot, the, the scale of reference in that we're pulling data from is much smaller. Um, that helps reduce the variability that we're dealing with, allows for more accurate data. Um, so it, it's, it's what we really want to be doing is using this data um, in combination with each other, right? We want to be, for, if we're looking at potentially implementing a new practice and somebody comes and knocks on our door and says, hey, you really should be trying this or doing this, um, you know, the first step, should be digging into some of that small plot research. Is there some unbiased third-party research that can give me an indication, an idea of, of what the results may be on a small plot trial? Um, and then taking that information and, and saying, okay, well, what does this actually look like on my farm? Um, how do I potentially implement this to test the same question and see whether I'm aligned? Um, but obviously there is, there is risk to doing that because, um, you know, as, as Paul mentioned earlier on, you really want to be asking this question over multiple locations over multiple years, because like the data he showed, the difference between 2023 and 2022 could create an enormous difference between, uh, two different years. Um, and Farmers need to be gamblers. You're, you're gambling on decisions based on the most accurate information you can get in an environment and soils that vary year to year, location to location. Um, and I was looking at a paper that was looking at on-farm research and um, the, the, the emphasis on that can vary so much depending on where you are in the country. If you're um, at, in flat, black, high organic matter soil, you know, trials over two years on your, on your fields can give you a decent indication of what the results may be. But if you're on the Montana Plains, it could take you eight years to develop enough data over trials, on-farm trials, to get a confident amount of data enough to say that I'm, I'm, this is likely a good direction for me to be going. And that's where the dependence on small scale trials becomes so much more important because the time, the investment, the, the um, requirement to develop enough data to make an informed decision becomes so much more important because small plot research is done over six, seven, eight locations over three, four years. So you're talking about um, especially if we, if there's been multiple trials or multiple research projects done on this, you're talking about decades 
of site years worth of information then to be making decisions on that at this point with the technology that we have is relatively impractical to develop that strength of data on a farm scale in areas of the country where the variability year to year of environmental conditions is is huge you know i i I loved looking at that chart that, that Paul shared of, of the two different years. And it made me think about the past three years we've had in Alberta, you know, the 2021 was bone dry. They called it the heat dome. We didn't get any moisture and, and it was 30 degrees for what felt like 60 days. Um, and then this past year we were bone dry in the spring. And then in some areas it didn't stop raining for um, halfway June and all of July and we ended up with 16 inches and you know the that variability um, creeps in trying to develop data on farm so you really have to utilize both small plot and mm -hmm. field scale to get an idea of what's going on but it, it's this is this is the challenge that producers are left with is small plot is not directly representative of the growing conditions, the the cropping system, uh, the inputs that they may see on farm, but trying to ask those same questions and get the same amount of and strength of data on a farm scale, uh, the amount of energy required and resources required and preciseness required almost makes it not worth it. Mm-hmm. Some of that middle ground and again take that risk yeah um also i'll just note that as we've been sitting here i'm watching i went completely blurry and jeremy came into focus and now i can see me again and jeremy's gone out but paul you stay angelic as ever in the middle <laughs> crisp and clear um, so I don't know. That's probably, there's a metaphor in there somewhere. All right. So, uh, Dave says, uh, Dr. Dave Hooker says his favorite research proposals involve intensive, high number of comparison and small plots, then taking a few key comparisons, installing them on a field scale for validation, um, using the air quotes. Uh, it's, and, and really building off that point, Jeremy, is that, I mean, small plot data and small plot research is valid. It's just what we do with it and recognizing where it fits. And exactly that, which findings do you take and sort of extrapolate and prove on the, on the wider scale? Paul, I want to go back to you on that question of in looking at and talking about that farming the data, um, you know, farming on, on a couple years or using as much data as you can. Do you, I mean, looking at those maturity on soybeans, let's just start there. Um, is it a typical thing that you're telling clients is that they should be choosing, let's say they farm, you know, 400 acres or 300 acres. Are you pushing them to, to have several different maturities in there? Is that already, they, they know that, or is that still a tough sell? Um, it, it depends on the grower, but in general, that's what we're, we're talking. Let's sell a package of hybrids, spread the maturity, whether it's corn, beans, and, and you just don't know what Mother Nature is going to throw at you next year. So the best way of doing that is, yeah, plant a short, a medium, and a long day variety. And you kind of have yourself covered. And it's, it's going to depend on the customer, too. You know, if I'm just a 50 or 100-acre grower, that's a lot different than you said, yeah, three or 500. But we can get a couple thousand-acre growers, and it's a totally different ballgame. Mm -hmm. Jeremy's like, or like 10,000, like my, you know, the ones that I work with. Whatevs. 
10,000 acres. Um, my neighbor this week asked me, how much is, how many acres are in a section? And I told him and he said, oh, that's quite a bit. Um, so that is the difference between Ontario and the West. Uh, we don't deal in sections here. It's 100 acres at a time. Um, all right. So, but it's a good, it's a key point though in taking, it's a very practical way to take data like you showed, Paul, of how much you can see just in two years difference between, you know, what was the, the winner, um, quote unquote, on a short season versus a long. Uh, we get our favorite. It depends. So I really like that because um, we get that a lot. So, the, the yeah, wor- go ahead. The worst thing you can do is pick this year's top winner and go 100% all that way. Right. We have some people that do that, and the next year they totally really? go the opposite way, and <laughs> it just does there's not probably, work in economics. I, <laughs> I feel like there's probably a personality trait in there somewhere. Probably. That is like <laughs> probably. That's like chasing. It worked last year. It's going to work this year. Didn't work last year. Going to do. Okay. Um, Yeah, absolutely. All right. We are uh, rapidly running out of time here. I I thank everyone uh, for joining us in the comments, uh, asking some great questions. Uh, Definitely some good ones in there. And we've had plenty that came in. Um, I, I mean, there's we could do a whole show on trying to, you know, decipher which platform is best, let's say. Um, And I'd love to get your thoughts on it in that for me, it's about what potentially you're already working with um, and what you're comfortable with. But how, uh, Paul, how do you sort of work through that conversation of let's add another layer of data? Is that a customer by customer kind of thing of pushing them towards wanting to sign up for even more perhaps into a full platform? It all depends on the customer and the value that you get out of it at the end of the day. And then I think the support they get with it. Um, just adding more data for the sake of adding more data. If you don't use it and do something with it, why do it? And mm-hmm. it, it, again, it's going to depend on the customer, how tech's out of the air, what equipment they have. Can they readily put that into a piece of equipment and do something with it, like variable rate seating or variable rate fertility? The list goes on. So again, the, the traditional agronomist depends, right? <laughs> depends. Um, yeah, it's our favorite, it's our favorite answer. Uh, Jeremy, looking forward to 2024. <laughs> Uh, do you have a favorite trial that's going to be happening? You're allowed to pick favorites yeah. because none of them, um, none of them have started. Yeah. So, um, we do have a number of potential trials we're looking at. Um, and you know, we, we, we conducted these this past year. Um, but obviously environmental conditions change year after year. We had a very dry spring. Um, and what we're doing is looking at different ratios of inclusion of enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizers um, in our spring seeded crop. So when we're putting down urea in spring, whatever product we may be looking at um, that's volatilization or nitrification or nitrification inhibitor, um, if we put that in at 25% or 50% or 75% or 100%, is that changing um, our yield is that changing our quality, um, and what does that actually mean for the farmer? You know, we're 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 trying to align this with some of the small plot research we're seeing out of uh, agriculture and agri-food Canada with Brian Barris, looking at some of these enhanced efficiency fertilizers and what that means for environmental um, emissions, um, and then aligning that to okay, what do these products like to use? What kind of ratios are we looking at in terms of of impact on 
uh, yield and quality um, and tying that full story back together because there's uh, a lot of programs here in Western Canada targeted at inclusion of these products in the system. So really trying to understand what that means. Um, and the other one that uh, I'm always excited to look at is the use of, of plant growth regulators, um, specifically in barley. Uh, our malt barley industry is one of the best um, in the world. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, lodging can cause a massive impact on yield and quality in, in some of these high yielding zones with high organic matter and high rainfall. Um, and, and where this product fits in. And there's a very interesting genetics by environment, by management interaction that's occurring. So which varieties are best in which areas um, and, and how producers use them, I'm, I'm always interested to see. And uh, a couple of years ago, we aligned with, with Olds College and we were able to take drone imagery of the lodging in these different uh, treatment areas um, and get a statistical difference in, in just visually uh, running it through machine learning of, of how that application impacted lodging and then tying that into yield and quality. Look at that. You even you got drones in there, Jeremy. That's amazing. And brought up the gem, the genetics yeah. by environment by. Yeah. OK. Um, love it. OK. That is super exciting. And also, you didn't know it, uh, but you completely segued into next week's show, which is about nitrogen and enhanced efficiency fertilizer. So thank you for that. I've got uh, uh, Mario Tenuta is gonna join us. And I think Ray DeBanco might might have said yes. I don't know, you guys can bully him in the comments. I mean, encourage him in the comments. Um, Paul, we'll give the last word to you. What are, what are you most excited about? What data are you most excited about crunching now as the, as the season wraps up? What are you most excited to look wow. into? We're working on corn population data. I always like doing that. I have some interesting fun fungicide on soybeans, especially for the white mold year. We did some sulfur fertility trials. So those three ones, I'm just trying to get all that put together here. And then just last minute, we're doing a bunch of looking at kernel weights, kernels uh, per bushel, basically, in corn. So I've done a whole bunch of trials that are sitting there counting corn. My wife need, in the kitchen. In the kitchen. You need no. You need a whole bunch of students to do that. Find like a grade yeah. six classroom or something together. I am seeing though. I'd love seeing these pictures of people with these like fat kernels. So uh, we'll see where that goes. Okay, sounds good. And Paul, uh, I'm sure you'll be tweeting out some of those results. Uh, can we say that now? I don't know what Xing is. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it doesn't. Yeah, tweeting sounds better. So you'll be sharing those. All right. Okay. So thank you uh, to each of you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in the comments. Of course, head on over to realagriculture.com slash agronomists. Get those CU credits. And we will be back next week, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on The Agronomists. Cheers, everybody.